if, if there's any theme coming out here over the it's uh, it's that the memory story is so foundational to no matter what aspect you're in in neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience we have to get a grip on it one way or the other again just because people wrote it 800 years ago doesn't mean it was idiotic it was people who thought very carefully about thinking science has become uh, replaced by engineering or basically in at least in my area in cognitive neuroscience say science is now correlation and regression and that's engineering this is brain inspired hey everyone i am paul my guest today is becoming a recurring character uh, on this podcast david popel has appointments all over the place but he runs his lab at nyu where they study auditory cognition, speech perception, language, and music. So says uh, his lab website. So like I said, David's been on the podcast uh, multiple times in the past, once by himself, once with Yuri Buzaki. And the reason why he's on today is because a few episodes ago, uh, on episode 172, <laughs> I had David Glansman on the podcast. And um, David Glansman came on to discuss his work trying to show that memory is stored um, not between neurons at the synapse, which is the established story or dogma, uh, but rather that memory is stored within neurons, likely in a more stable form in the nucleus of the neuron. So a week or so after that episode, David Popel uh, popped into my email, appreciating uh, David Glansman's work and reiterating how important it is for neuroscience to figure out something so fundamental, uh, how memory works. In the brain. So um, we discuss that and surrounding topics. We discuss similar things for language, which is one of uh, David's focuses. And we end by talking about David and Nina Kazanina's recent reexamination of the idea of what's called the language of thought. So the language of thought is a poorly named um, construct because it doesn't necessarily have to do with language. Actually, it doesn't really have to do with language at all. But it's the idea that our thoughts must be governed by some orderly, logical structure and rules. And David and Nina show how, in principle, neuroscience already has some of the data suggesting that a language of thought is possible and should be studied at the neural level. And besides that, we just talk about how David thinks about brains and how he thinks that brains and minds should be studied, which we've talked about a little bit before, but we go over again and in more detail and I think it's important to have people like David in the field to remind us that it's important to think critically <laughs> and think deeply about these topics. Okay, show notes are at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 176. Thank you to all my Patreon supporters. You guys make my world go round. All right, and here is David Puppel. The reason we're talking today, welcome back. Good to see you, by the way. Thank you. Good to see you. I'm glad to I'm glad to have a chance to chat and see if we can cause more confusion or make more problems for someone else. <laughs> well, this is kind of an impromptu discussion because I recently had David Glansman on and talking about memories as uh, being stored within the nucleus internally, uh, memory as a molecular process, and this prompted you to. Uh, reach out and and I had forgotten actually because I, you know I think of you as the language and rhythms and the linking hypothesis hypotheses kind of guy uh, but but I had forgotten when I did my little hundredth episode series 
Um, and I think I think it was in answer to the question, what is holding us back? I was surprised that you had mentioned our our concept of memory, our understanding of or lack thereof of memories. And so then I was reminded of that when you when you emailed David and I about that episode. Um, so uh, I really have no agenda, like I told you before, but I wanted to get your your thoughts on, you know, well, that aspect. But then you've you've written about memory recently, too. So we'll talk about that and a host of other topics as well. So I mean, let's, why don't we just, so I was sitting in the car uh, driving from, I think Cape Cod back to New York. And I was listening to a couple of your podcasts and then I had not listened to David Glansman's episode. And I have never met David, but I knew that one of my former research assistants and um, Emma Laurent, who's actually Gilles Laurent's daughter, and herself now a graduate student in psychology, she had worked in his lab and the name sort of crept up. And I said, oh, I really must listen to this. And I was absolutely fascinated. I thought it was a really great discussion. People should listen to that episode. Also because of the really cool historical um, yeah. examples and perspective that that Klansman gives in the, in the discussion with you. And of course, yeah, it stimulated me because, you know, I've been thinking about that stuff from a slightly different perspective, but he is much closer to the kind of uh, perspective that, that Randy Gallistel has also articulated. And these people have you know, spent a long time thinking about the kind of conceptual challenges of memory. And I was like, all right, these, this, this, this is not silly. This is, you know, the, the, when you hear this kind of challenge for the first time, you know, they're, you're, yeah. Sort of knee-jerk reaction might be, yeah, a bunch of old cranks, you know, their feelings are hurt that some papers from the 60s weren't carefully read or something like that. But then you get into it and you're like, well, actually, they have some really deep, challenging points to our conception of, of memory and storage in particular. And so I was very moved by that. And in fact, I had organized last year in Germany a little workshop called Beyond Associations, which was organized a little bit about Randy Galstall's thinking. Which so so this topic is not uh, dormant anymore. I think an increasing number of us in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience are aware that there is a there's a serious serious problem. Well, I mean, and David, that it's going to possibly hold us back. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, you, you said it's not being ignored, but. In my conversation with David, you know, his woes in obtaining funding and the the arc of his research lab, the size of it has dwindled, et cetera. One might uh, take home the opposite conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because he's he's uh, he was on this early on, as I guess was Gallistel. Maybe they've been thinking and writing about this for for ten years, and that's been tricky. But now. Uh, I think in the last couple of years, they, their message is being received more, I wouldn't say enthusiastically, on the contrary. I talk to you know uh, my colleagues and friends, they think it's outrageous and stupid. And, you know, we have well-developed synaptic theories and, you know, goes, you know, get out of here. <laughs> but, um, I think it's just, uh, I think a growing number of us in different, and coming from different fields, as I also then wrote to David Glansman in response to the episode with you, we're thinking about similar problems because mm. we don't have a good story, right? So, so 
Klansman in his discussion with you mentioned all these like wonderful and really quirky historical experiments on plenaria and, you know, chopping up this, that, and the other thing. And the problem of, you know, what does it mean to have nuclear storage? And, you know, likewise, when you talk to someone like Randy Gallistel, he brings computational challenges. Like how would you in fact have something like um, stuff that you can put together if you have only synaptic mechanisms, very difficult. I mean, just fundamental problems like compositionality. And so we, and uh, why, why does this relate to what we do at all? And uh, because we have a very concrete question about storage, which is you have a vocabulary. This is not a complicated idea to get across. Like we're having this conversation. We have a bag of words in our head and it works pretty well. And it's, we have pretty decent estimates across you know, languages, what that means. And so you have to have a story for that. You can't blow that off. That's one of the core things of how we, you know, communicate, think, deal with ourselves. So that problem is, is um, and, and the reason I reached out to David Glansman is not to say, oh, we're very close to have an idea about how, you know, the storage of your mental lexicon works. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we don't know our ass from our elbow. But <laughs> that's a that's a good alternate title. You sent me this uh, piece that you wrote, a short piece in Trends in Cognitive Science, and and yeah. the title of that says it all. It's we don't know how the brain stores anything, let alone words. But I like yes. I like your your recent phrasing there as well. <laughs> yes, I mean this is a more muscular phrasing. In the, <laughs> yeah. And so what I wanted to so so the point I wanted to make is uh, or share is that not that we have any kind of systematic sensible understanding of how stuff is stored in the language domain. No, not at all. It's that we have pretty good theories, you know, cognitive, linguistic, computational theories of what has to be accomplished. That is to say, we can kind of decompose the problem in some sensible way and say like, look, you know, if you can't do A, B, C, D, you're toast. And so um, let's just take, you know, some sub, some facet of the memory stuff that you have to accomplish somehow. And so maybe that allows us a kind of way in uh, to, to have more, you know, mechanistic implementational approaches to the problem. So the computational theory to be Marian about it is pretty well worked out. And we have alternative implementation levels of analysis. And well, algorithmically we, you know, again, we are kind of stuck, but that's where I think there's a connection between people like uh, David Glansman's concern. And he has a very nice paper that he, uh, that I, you know, where he kind of goes through the history and the arguments and why, there is actually not so much of a tension, you know, or there's a possibility to resolve the tension between the right. synaptic mechanisms. It's not like they're not there. Uh, but then the challenges of long-term storage, which may or may not be uh, intracellular mechanisms. So I thought, and then, so I think there's a game in town and the fact that it's unpopular probably means that there's some, there's a there there. Well, I, I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but one of the things I'm recurringly struck with is, I don't know if in neuroscience with the modern computationalism approach, uh, everything is computation, if we've lost sight of the fact that um, the super impressive fact that all of these things are are nested across levels, right? Whether you're talking, I mean, of, of course, the synapse, for things to happen at the synapse, you have to have intracellular machine, quote unquote, machinery biological processes, right? So there is something happening in the cell. Uh, and then, but but do we need to, is that the nexus of memory? Do we need to locate memories inside the cell? And how these things interact, I think is one of the, to me, 
just recurring impressive feats of, <laughs> if you could call it that, of biology. And I don't know if modern neuroscientists missing that or not appreciating it enough. And I don't know your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, it's it's super impressive, and um, the and I think that the the uh, attempt to at least sort of speculate productively speculate or theorize about hypothesize about the what is the relation between the, and all this rich intracellular stuff and what happens you know, to the outside? How do you uh, is totally open and it's impressive that it works at all. Right. So, so suppose I mean, look, suppose somebody like Glansman or Gallistel or, or others that are, you know, uh, and some Aglakpur who has this extremely interesting theory based of RNA based computation, super interesting. So if these guys, so suppose one of these guys are right, and let's say you store some item, you know, for in the case of Gallistel, he's really yeah. about number, right? he thinks a lot about numeric cognition and in particular inserting uh, values, you know, variables into equations and stuff like that for, for navigation. Or suppose you're me and you want to store a word. A syllable. Cat. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cat video or cat syllable. Um, then how do you actually... Uh, and so, how do you then externalize it to the surface so that it can, you know, so that information, suppose it is for it's a series of ones and zeros, you know, at the most abstract level, how do you actually then convey right. that so they can say two cats? Right. So is that actually all done in the cell or is that cell? To, so we still have synaptic mechanisms. We have communication between cells that's probably underestimated in its complexity. Uh, but you have to then get it out. You have to get the information in and you have to get the information out. David Glansman has some interesting ideas about this. Uh, uh, and I think it's important about, you know, short the, the short terminus of synaptic uh, mechanisms and let's say a sort of evaluative mechanism. Maybe that's a good way. You know, you don't want to write everything into cells or something like that. But anyway, there's a, there's a kind of rich series of problems where we're just, you know, we go, we go to, you know, we open our textbook, whatever, Kandel, Bear, any of these things, Nichols, and we say, oh, look at this theory of the synapse, so cool, you know, and it's, it's glutamate, wow, awesome. Um, and then you're like, well, but wait a minute. <laughs> now let's actually think of what you have to do. And so I think it, the fact that it works is amazing, but the fact that we don't even have the intellectual courage to say we're missing something really profound in our understanding, that's kind of lame. I mean, that, that has to change. And it's your job to make a change by pushing it, by having right, people yeah. keep talking about it. Okay, good. That's on you. It doesn't <laughs> okay, work. So, small responsibility. But so, you know, a lot of the experiments that Glansman has done and talks about, and, you know, you kill um, an aplesia. You extract, or you extract its RNA. You don't have to kill it. Uh, you extract its RNA. I guess you do kill it. Anyway, you extract its RNA. You put it in a new one, and that new one all of a sudden has a quote unquote learned behavior, or some some sort of behavior is transferred. Uh, some people say, well, okay, that's awesome, but that's you know really low level. It's like a procedural memory. It's just behavior. And then, so for instance, um, in reaction to this episode with with David Glansman, someone wrote in the, in our little uh, Discord community, um, they said, I know it's almost cliche to ask, quote, but what even are memories, end quote, at this point, because I feel like we run into that question with almost every guest. Uh, and, you know, he goes on to uh, articulate just some confusion about, well, how, you know, he, he has trouble thinking about storage at the intracellular level at the synapse, you know, how do we even approach thinking about this? And, but anyway, so 
so you know, pe- back to the kinds of experiments that have been done. And what I, what I want to get to is ask you, you know, do you, how do you feel about uh, what's your bet about whether this is a feasible thing with higher level cognitive stuff like words, concepts, etc. Because what we've seen so far is, I mean, it's sophisticated, monarch butterfly, flying patterns, etc. You know, a a caterpillar's brain gets, um, I think I have this right, gets totally disintegrated and reformed, you know, and it's and it has the memory of what it was taught, etc. But but you could say these are kind of low level cognitive feats, perhaps. Yeah. Why, Why would it be different in kind? I mean, it's information of some form that needs to be stored, needs to be written down, needs to be written out, right? Retreat, stored and retrieved to be used for subsequent steps, operations, computations, whatever metaphor you prefer. And so well, I don't see why it would be different in kind. It would be a tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, feat and super informative if we knew anything like that about the caterpillar to moth transformation or how a word is stored. And that all I want to, you know, look, my, my non-contribution, but just sort of um, stimulation. Why not? Th- so, so why, again, back to the word stuff, because it's, it's uncontroversial that we store such things and that we have them in long-term memory and that they're in some sense abstract or complicated or co- you know, whatever. Okay, it's just, why, why would actually navigation be any less abstract by the way but that's a, that's for later so you have we we know certain things about this so for example here's what we know you make contact with whatever that stored thing is through sight through sound through touch right so you can actually so you have pointers from so that already tells you something about the format the format must be sufficiently flexible or abstract that different sensory modalities, in fact, any sensory modality, can actually reach that stored thing. So that's already pretty interesting. It needs to be in a kind of format that you can actually take another thing and stick them together, make a chain, make a different kind of room. It needs to be uh, uh, connected to something that generates output, so a motor coordinate system. So we have certain criteria or kind of desiderata to be more hoity-toity, that simply must be met on in a logical ground. And I think, you know, step by step, peeling away the layers are just kind of interesting um, computational clues on what has to be accomplished. And if that, if it turns out that one of those little clues is solved in a, you know, in planaria or in the, you know, caterpillar demoth transition, that's fine. I mean, we're looking for mechanistic hints of how that could even be accomplished. And so here, so my complaint about the literature is, and I'm actually working on a paper with this one of my graduate students is, we have um, we have been seduced by focusing on the implementation level of description when we talk about these problems, because we have cool experiments working on synaptic stuff, because they're doable, they're cool, they're by and large replicable if you do them, you know, well, and so on and so forth. And, we, and we're building an edifice of um, descriptive stuff that we have kind of uh, been much more cavalier. And this is, I think, where, where Randy Gellis is so important about saying, well, what has to be accomplished here? What are actually mm-hmm. the, what is memory for? What does it mean to carry information forward? I mean, that is the most core sense what, what memory is, right? So it's, you have information, 
that's stored and carried forward and can be used. Well, that's storage. Is, is that memory? Uh, but how, you know, what should we think of as memory encircling? Because there is storage, there's the encoding, and then there's the retrieval. Mm -hmm. Is all of that memory? Like what, but you just said storage is memory. So how do we think about memory? And, and well, I mean, so, so, I mean, okay, maybe, maybe we're, maybe memory is just a not very okay. useful term anymore. Maybe it's just too, too, uh, maybe it has too many sub, uh, sub parts. So you're right. I mean, the, I just informally mean it's the stored information that can be written in and written out. So there's an encoding that has to happen a long-term storage that has to happen and a retrieval so they can plug these things in. Right? That's the cool thing. Whether you're talking about low-level things or high-level things, let's talk about you know the, the ant navigation stuff. Those are small brains and it's not trivial. You pull out some value, you have a counter or an odometer and you say, well, I have to put this value into this equation that I get out this vector. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty amazing. But it's very specialized, and so you don't need huge, you know, integrated information theory or, you know, global network-based theories of consciousness to solve that. You need a circuit that does that. But the question is, are we, in our enthusiasm uh, of just focusing on description of implementation, have we lost track of the problem that's actually trying to be uh, that that's under the microscope that we're trying to solve. And so we're so excited about every technical advance at the level of, you know, whatever, now single cell, you know, transcriptomics. Um, cool. It's amazing that you can do it. And it's one, it's a wonderful description, but it's not, is it going to yield explanation? And that, that's where I'm not so enthusiastic. And I think we're, we're being misled. Hmm. So you're not a fan of uh, the engram, the, the modern story of the engram. Why would I not be? Well, I, I, mean, I think I, it, I mean, well, I mean, when I th when I think of engram, I what I kind of think of. So I had Tomal Ryan on, and I think of that kind of work, Tonagawa, et cetera, um, where you're, it's basically like these cells kind of get labeled, right? And then you have a pattern of cells, and that pattern is the physical yeah. trace, you know, and. And so yeah. they get tagged essentially, and the tagging of the cells is another issue uh, to talk about. But uh, but I think yeah, of it in terms yeah. of the, the cell level and like a pattern of cells, not the internal uh, intra nuclear storage mechanism. Yeah, no, but I think uh, I think that's a debate between so 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 um, Ryan with all these has done wonderful experiments on this. I think he's. Uh, the question is, what's the physical basis of memory? And their notion of engram is just a different notion of engram than someone like Lance yeah. Gunnar-Galliston. Right? So they're, they're, I think they're working it's on the physical trace of memory. That's what the problem. engram is means. And but however the, you do, yeah, yeah, yeah. The physical. So let's. I mean, there's a nice and there's a nice paper. I think it's in Cognition by hmm. by Galliston called "The Physical Basis of Memory," where he challenges, he lays out the arguments why it's so difficult to do it in a synaptic way. So I think we're all. I mean, maybe we're, we're using terminology in a too sloppy way still because we have this sort of historical baggage. But, and and maybe maybe the message for me is it's really critical to be a splitter and not a lumper. It's like you said, like what is memory? Well, maybe let's be more let's be more principled and careful and be like, wow, it has all these parts. 
which ones are the ones where we're really maybe the encoding part at some state that's not a one size fits all thing that has lots of complicated steps maybe some of them are more obvious and some of them are totally non-obvious they're not even they're they're not problems they're mysteries hmm. so um maybe that's one of the things we can do is just to be much more careful pedantic splitters <laughs> splitting yeah. pedantry as a virtue splitting pedantry i mean maybe we'll get into this in a little bit but uh you've recently done some work with large language models and and you know the the, the paper suggests or argues that well we should take what we should use more of what we know about human memory and that and basically try to build large language models with augmented memory, which is already, there's a lot of that work already being done. But uh, your your work says, well, there are these subroutine processes that we know have to occur for encoding and storage and retrieval. So maybe we should use those uh, to inspire large language models. Mm -hmm. And you guys have done a little bit of that work. So, Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, uh, that seems to me just like, um, like much of science where we're be, let's say, pragmatically opportunist. I mean, stuff is hard. And so look to where you can to get uh, little uh, tweaks and, you know, whatever, a good pair of scissors and a screwdriver to, to put the thing together to help you understand that stuff. I think it's really, I mean, isn't that what we always do? Uh, we look around and we're like, oh, that, that actually could be really useful to solve this problem over here. So let's look, it, this requires pliers. So, oh, look, there's a pair of pliers, you know, the kind of... Um, I think pragmatic opportunism is uh, is it has to be the partner to principled hmm. theorism. I mean, I'm I'm you know I like the sort of theoretically inspired research, but in our day to day lab work, we would be crazy not to use you know uh, the the techniques we have available. So, I mean, one of the things I've worked on the, the well, I've worked on one of my postdocs has worked on. For a long time now, a postdoc named Yu Sun, he's a postdoc at, at, at AZ in, in Frankfurt, on using, uh, you know, computational approaches, just or, uh, and, and sometimes just counting and care, carefully constructed thing to ask the question, uh, you know, what is the parts, what, you know, one, what is the parts list? You know, we're, we're trying to, we're trying to keep, we're like mechanics. That's how I see ourselves. Like, what, you know, what is one of the, Parts and he's just a question, as you'd yeah. think, very banal question about oh, you know, what's a syllable? Turns out to be extremely difficult theoretically, computationally, and to so I, we just had a paper come out a week ago or so where he, you know that's many years of work of you carefully constructing the argument that it's actually it's a primitive, it's one of the basic Lego blocks of the language system. Now you'd think that would have been settled a hundred years ago, but it ain't so. Right. <laughs> so it requires a lot of work and a lot of, you know, kind of and at the intersection of theory and just basic computational stuff to figure out that that's a Lego block. But that's cool. That's good to know. Now we know. Okay, so now we have these three Lego blocks or something like that, and maybe we can have some, you know, other Lego blocks. Um, but you have to be uh, willing to look to all kinds of weird things to to make these cases. I mean, this is. Maybe that's more like Paul Feyerabend's against method in terms of mm. uh, philosophy of science, right? So there's a little bit of chaos, and then there are these moments of of, uh, of insight that rejigger your conceptualization of the problems. How have this is an aside, and I'm sorry for that, but how have you? So you strike me as someone who has always kept your head 
uh, above the clouds and kind of trying to see the big picture and you, you know, have a philosophical bent and you always seem to have, uh, but how do you stay in both worlds? Uh, at, you know, like the low level, you're the mechanic, but you're also the philosopher, right? And how has that affected your career? Do you think, has it helped? Do you recommend that to everyone? Everyone has different personalities and does science differently, et cetera. I, I don't recommend it, <laughs> but no, it's an like, I can see I, you can kind of get sucked down into uh, the inability to move forward if you see all of the problems, right? Yeah, you got it. I mean, you get it, it can be so. So, but here, I mean, there are, you know, a couple of so, so as an advanced middle age, you know, privileged professor. Let me say one. You know, as most of us know. The a good thing to do, although I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's good in the his, sense of history of science and philosophy of science. A good thing to do is pick a problem and beat it down. So there's nothing wrong with working on your favorite subtype of the NMDA receptor for 20 years. Absolutely nothing wrong. Something important will be built that becomes sort of the test bed for further experimentation and theorizing. Mm -hmm. And so. Focusing on something that's a well, you know, making the problem well defined and sharpening it and really sticking, you know, I think it's very good. But then if you have intellectual ADHD, like I do, it's very difficult to sit still because you are not, you know, you're, I, I feel like I'm not even close to what I'm actually trying to figure out. I'm, so for me, this metaphor, well, it's not a metaphor. I mean, the notion of a parts list is very important. I mean, it's how I think about stuff um, and or, you know, the notion of primitives in cognitive science or if you're more philosophically inclined, the ontological structure of the domain. And it's important to me because I understand the nature of the, the I, I simply understand, I get it. <laughs> I could say, look, there's a bunch of parts and it's a little more straightforward in the, in the case of the implementation level of the script. You can say, look, there's cells, but these cells have the following parts, and then there's an endoplasmatic reticulum, and there's this mm -hmm. thing, and there's a protein there. And you can really you can make a list. And making lists is, in some sense, very satisfying. It's also tricky because, as Feynman said, uh, there's always room at the bottom. You know, it's, it's smaller and smaller and smaller. But you can have a, you can have a clear sense of uh, primitive uh, or elementary pieces and elementary operations that's something that we do and it's very clear to understand when we look at the implementation of tissue in biology right? so, uh, i think we can do the same thing in yeah. the psychological yeah. and cognitive sciences or you know the computational cognitive science or whatever who cares what we call it that is we subdivide the thing into what we think are the elementary constituents there hence my example of the syllable like this you know the that's for me now one of the primitives. That's a Lego block. It's necessary for perception, for production, and for storage. Now that's I think that's that's a known known. So, uh, and as you, you were mentioning, I'm, I'm you know I think of this in terms of kind of linking hypotheses. If I'm convinced that the that the list of items that we have in at the implementation level is pretty well developed or well motivated, and likewise I have such a list of elementary representations, although that's a red flag for the computations, then the problem becomes a little bit more clear to me. And it's simply for me, I think about it this way at the level of sort of philosophical analysis of the problem, because I'm too dumb to think about it otherwise. I need I need like lists and arrows 
that's how I can think about it very clearly because I know it helps me define the problem. It helps me understand that, look, this is extremely difficult because we know this is done and we know this is the sub- mm-hmm. this is the stuff of brain and this is the stuff of mind. How is this supposed to work? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's a way to do it. Be a dualist. <laughs> very elegant. No problem. Our work is done. If you're not a dualist, then the shit has kind of hit the fan. And then we have to really, you know, go to great lengths to figure out even the most elementary things, such as storage or encoding storage and retrieval. That's one of the most elementary things that that presumably nervous systems are for. And so if we don't have that right, then how are we going to make progress on anything else? So the kind of so there always is a back and forth between nitty-gritty experimentation and then zooming out and trying to figure out, well, what is this about? You know, what is this, is this, does this have an aboutness? And for me, this has been, because of my ADHD, I just like to read stuff about different things. And I like, I found it interesting. But you don't recommend it. You, I do. But you, don't, but you just said you don't recommend, you, you began with saying that you don't recommend your, your approach to aspiring I scientists. don't recommend it to, to uh, if you're, if you're, if you have a very straight, I mean, if you feel like you have to make steady progress oh, um, and that, that you feel on safe ground, I don't recommend it. Stay at the implementation level of description and work on a very particular thing. If you're already destabilized or neurotic or you like a lot of things, then I recommend it for two reasons. First of all, access to extremely interesting ideas that are old and that we just forget at our, you know, at our own peril. And uh, and kind of new ways to to you know think of an older. So let's take Plato. I mean, the notion of you know the the, the dialogue Mino, M E N O, is a pretty interesting you know discussion about how can you know something new. What is the notion of mm. discovery? Mm. Uh, and when you read that kind of stuff, you're like, actually, that's not such a stupid. You know that that may be two thousand five hundred years old, but these people weren't idiots, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so some of so it's a kind of you're like, well, I actually have to think about that because there's a it, it makes interesting arguments for did you have to know it before? Does it have to be innate? How would you actually know it at all? How could you actually discover something new if you didn't know there was a hole? I mean, mm-hmm. it raises sort of the logical uh, inconsistencies with our notion of science and our notion of epistemology or knowledge accrual in a very interesting way. So it's worthwhile reading that stuff if you're inclined to think about that way. But the, the danger is that you then get, as you pointed out, you go down a bunch of rabbit holes. How can you reconnect it to experimental questions that you're trying to answer? That's the real challenge. And, that, that, and then sometimes it just goes wrong. Well, this is related the to the question. Papers, by the way, just, another, uh, just as a recommendation, which I tell people in my lab all the time, it's one of my biggest recommendations. Also, just read old stuff, not just because it's it's just because it was written better. Oh. Because the papers we right now are just excruciatingly boring, cookie cutter, formulaic schlock. Hmm. They all look the same. They sound the same. Uh, but these older papers, even like read Journal of Neurophysiology papers from 50 years ago, they're just beautifully written. They're fun. They're interesting. They're quirky. You see someone like working out an idea and have like 60 figures. And you're like, wow, that's that's real intellectual engagement with the problem. Our papers are like figure 2L. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Why has that changed? I mean, 
it must have it must be for the better somehow. When you were mentioning earlier, I'm going to kind of switch gears here uh, about the things that we know we need implementation level wise. Um, and we were discussing this in terms of language. I don't think so. You know, you, you need your sensory modalities to be connected with the storage, to be connected with the motor modalities. And what you didn't mention is that you have to do it quickly at the uh, milliseconds level time frame. And you also didn't miss, mention uh, oscillations <laughs> in that list. Um, so what I so I wanted to bring that up and, and time and oscillations and large language models and what what you think of the large language models and what they can and can't tell us or how have they affected your thinking about language, multiple realizability, implementation level, etc. I mean, so at the moment, so well, let's go out, uh, you know outside in. <laughs> so, what what is science about? Wow. Uh, and yeah. there you are above the clouds again. There are, let's go, let's, well, I mean, there, there's a, there's a point, but let me, uh, sure. I'm just trying to sort of see if I can get to, get to questions just step by step. So, so I think one way to think about that is historically, and uh, uh, but a kind of simple distinction is one way to do science and what science is about is uh, prediction and control. I see. Uh, those are two very foundational things, uh, and they and they play a huge role in in science and also in engineering. A different way and a complementary, not not you know not necessarily completely distinct, but a different way of thinking about it and a different way of practicing science is let's say explanation and understanding. And there are cases where these things come together very elegantly, and then there are cases where that doesn't work you know at all. In the worth of uh, Ruth Langmore from Ozark, we don't know shit about fuck. <laughs> oh, that's and, a oh, that's a television um, show. Okay. We, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> very very good. And so, the current work on these on, on engineering of speech and language and using models of that form uh, falls right into this difficult. Uh, into this difficult tension. So it's very clearly useful. Well, it's obvious. So let's first of all dispense with, is it useful? Yes, it's very useful. It can do cool things. Yeah. yeah so uh, this is, it's not what this is about. Yes, it's cool that you can do all these things. Although one might have some ethical concerns, energy consumption concerns. There's, there's lots of complicated debate that's worth having actually. Yeah. But um, j just on the, on the science side. So it's, the, the the kind of work is more on the side of um, prediction and control. I mean, these are systems we build in order, and it, obviously the notion of prediction is at the very center of this, sort right. of predicting right. the next thing, and control in the sense of, uh, of uh, engineering theory. The and I think um, and we can use that. We can capitalize on models like that to analyze our data, to think about what we can learn, and so on. The question is, does it meet what we are, what we think of in the sciences when we're trying to do understanding and explanation? Uh, there, I'm not so optimistic at the moment. I think that uh, they're super cool and they're also super far away from from what it is that we've accomplished so far in the in, you know 100 years of psychology and cognitive science. Oh. So I'm so I'm. Certainly, I think it's a very interesting test bed for for uh, for looking at things and for developing ideas. I do not, at the moment, think they have any particularly good relation to 
our criteria of explanation and understanding of a domain as complicated as language. So now let's take these big models. Can we suppose we start adding interesting stuff to them? Is that, you know, is that so let's let's call it biologically inspired AI or, or you know, something like that. Uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, is that going to actually open new ways of thinking about what the models do, how we think about hypothesis formation, and what we think of a theory is supposed to account for, and so on? So there, I think we're, we're it's early days, but um, for the moment, I, I very much appreciate the engineering contribution and how we can use models like that for, for example, data analysis or labeling. Yeah. Very cool, very useful, actually, super. Uh, totally different questions if we're standing around and saying, like, how is this actually going to answer a particular question about, let's say, storage? <laughs> um, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even know if it's answer askable. So I have, I have, um, yeah, I'm, I'm both optimistic about one aspect of it, and I'm sort of like meh about the other aspects, and you know, remains to be seen. I mean, in part, that has to do, again, with that uh, models of the form are high at the level of, impl they load on the level of implementation uh, and not so much on the level of sort of computational theory or explanation. I think that that divide is a very profound one. But even the storage uh, question, I mean, you could say that the, there's an argument to be said that, well, the answer is, I mean, obviously, they don't have nuclei. They're not storing things internal to the units, et cetera. So they are stored at the connection weights in some sense. Yeah. I don't, you know, and, and pretty long dependencies as well. Yeah. I mean, so there, there, I mean, if, if we assume that there are sort of analogies, then the analogy would be to kind of empiricist models of uh, sort of, you know, behaviorist, empiricist, associationist models of uh, storage and computation. Uh, so in, in terms of the way these things are uh, conceptualized, built, and then talked about, they're much more uh, uh, aligned with the notion of synaptic type of, you know, I mean, that's what they build on, right? The notion of, oh, well, there's weights all over the place. And um, so they're, they align well with that. And there's the challenges a la Glanzman, a la Gallistel, a la Johansson, a la, you know, Peter Balsam's on is, is simply, I think it's just simply not arrived there. Yet. Hmm. But I think that so take let's take a, the the you know, the challenge of of um, of oscillation. So suppose you build a model. So I mean, I have two colleagues, and in, in, in fact, um, the very distinguished visual neuroscientist Wolf Singer, who's a you know, member of my institute in Germany, and his and his uh, team, most notably uh, Peter, uh, sorry Felix Effenberger, uh, <clears throat> a postdoc in, in that lab, have worked with building. Um, large models in which they explicitly use the notion of a damped harmonic oscillator as, mm -hmm. as being a key of every unit. And then they're, so they're saying like, look, that's our notion of um, what certain, uh, certain layers of cortex simply have as part of their infrastructure. They say, look, you know, super granular layers, whatever here, layer two has, and let's just conceptualize this as every unit or every, every node being a damped harmonic oscillator. Uh, pretty interesting results. I mean, I don't think the, I believe the paper is not out yet, but they've, okay. they've built this and they've really tried to sort of um, uh, analyze sort of a range of kind of canonical tasks and new things. And, you know, we're 
collaborating with them now to test it on, for example, perception things. And it, it just is a, so that's a way to go that would be, let's call it, you know, it's not really biophysics. It's not a biophysical model, but it's sort of biologically inspired in the sense of let's take a feature of cortex and see what does it add? I mean, does it actually, it's sort of a hypothesis generation model. It says, if this works, that's cool. Let's see if mm-hmm. we can now turn that around and experiment. So I think there's a lot to be learned and a lot to be gained. So there is, even in the case of something as, as, Contentious as oscillations, there can be. Uh, um, I don't actually know why it's so contentious. I mean, I think it's just a you know. Yeah. People get really exercised about it. Those are things that are physiological excitability cycles. People have shown it for a long time. Sometimes they seem clearly to have causal force. Sometimes not. Uh, nobody gives a single you know one size answer for all of this. People are nuanced. They know it's complicated. They know you have to be very very careful about your. I mean, it's just. Sort of become a self-sustained debate about there's controversy, but no issue. <laughs> yeah, well, this—I mean, this just goes back to the difficulty in thinking across levels and about circular causality, right? Because you you need to explain things at one level. That's what we're comfortable with, and as soon as you start going across levels, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Because we don't have good linking hypotheses. That's there that's, you go. That's the special. You, yeah, that's another thing. Uh, yeah, that's that's another thing I, that Jeff Shaw, we, when I was a postdoc in his lab, every year we read a handful of papers, and Davida Teller's linking hypotheses is, is one of those uh, papers. So so you have kindred spirits out there still. Yeah, no, no, I think it's a very. I mean, look, I don't know if you've had. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you've had on your uh, on your podcasts, um, Catherine Carr from the University of Maryland, College Park. I mean. No. Catherine is an absolutely, you know, brilliant neuroethologist who's done you know, really foundational work. And, and uh, for example, some of her work that she did jointly with uh, Konishi on barn owl on the uh, barn owl sound localization is just—it's the kind of work that's that I aspire to uh, for the speech or language case or any aspect of cognition for that matter, because they have, you know, they they have really worked out the nuts and bolts from the cellular subcellular level to what kind of math is being done to what kind of behavioral task that can be made explicit and quantified is being solved. And it's one of the most beautiful pieces of biology. I think it's totally underappreciated because that is one of those linking things. One of the very few examples I know where the across level analysis is totally successful. You should really um, speak to Catherine. she also has a very evolutionary take. As a neuroethologist, unsurprisingly, she thinks very uh, evolutionary. Really beautiful. And someone who also does work uh, like that that's really is, is Gilles Laurent, right, with his work on, for example, uh, sleep in lizards. Or uh, that, that's, I think, very elegant. So trying really to go from, uh, from cells and circuits to very interesting and complicated behavior. So... The, the, I think one of the things that's coming back that I'm very excited about is ethology and neuroethology. And, you know, we've talked about this before, the mm-hmm. value of being, again, uh, principled pedantry and being extremely uh, careful about the behavioral analysis in, that doesn't mean you have to have everything in a naturalistic context. I mean, that's almost impossible to do. But to be careful about is the behavior that you're studying for an organism uh, matched to the kind of question you're asking 
Or is it just like we do this because we actually have done this experiment for 25 years and it kind of works? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, nice. nice. Hmm. Good on you. <laughs> the, I think the uh, bringing back the sort of ethological thinking is super, super helpful for where we are, including for, for the artificial neural network thinking. It's very, very good. And it gives it brings us away from this kind of uh, the uh, um, implementation. Uh, what do I want to call it? The, the imperialism of thinking like an implementationist. Like the, this is the you know I had this is the disagreement I have with Yuri Bujaki. I mean Yuri thinks very strongly what he calls inside out. Characterize, characterize, characterize. Measure very carefully. And then the story will tell itself of what is the mm -hmm. actual functional analysis of the problem. And I say, I think that's ass backwards. You know, and I respect and love Yuri, but I think it's wrong. I think it's actually, you have to have, and that's what we call the implementation sandwich. There's actually a secret theory underlying this stuff before you make your measurements. It's just latent. Uh, mm -hmm. The implementation is actually sandwiched between, you know, a latent theory and then actual explanation of what you're trying to do. So you have to have, and what neuroethology brings to us, what's so exciting about it is it says, well, let, let's try to really understand what this critter is doing. Uh, let's, uh, let's observe, let's measure, let's think about it. What is this, what's actually trying to be solved here? I mean, it's interesting that this, uh, you know, cuttlefish is trying to become like its background. Well, what's up with that? <laughs> like, how is, how is that possible? Hmm. And so to think again, much more, to, to not immediately make the jump. It's, this is not to say we're not supposed to do neuroscience. We're supposed to do neuroscience. We're neuroscientists, even if we're, like in my case, a self-hating neuroscientist. Um, but let's not immediately jump to the level of measurement, more measurement and more data collection. And let's see, well, can we characterize what is precisely the problem we're trying to study behaviorally, computationally, whatever, whatever domain you're, you're in? before making the, the leap to let's just measure everything like maniacs, just because we can, because the tools are cool. Yes, we can opt to, let's go ahead and have, you know, uh, well, it's nuts what we can do. It's amazing the stuff we can do now at the level of the tissue. It's, it's fantastic, hmm. but it hasn't, has it, you know, can you, can you point to a case where you say, well, that nailed it. That solved that problem in <laughs> motor, you know, like, I don't, <laughs> I think that actually uh, our edifice of knowledge, the body of the body of knowledge we build is probably more solidly built on behavioral and psychophysical data and actually deficit lesion data from, from long gone, you know, careful, careful, deep mm. study of individual cases that had, uh, you know, where you can very precisely characterize the, the, now, of course, the, the granularity of analysis of the neurobiology is very coarse, but the functional specification has been very impressive. You read those papers from the 60s and 70s, they were beautifully done, very elegant deficit lesion work that says, oh, my goodness, who knew that that actually dissociates so, so crisply? Right. And that tells you something, right? That's are you talking about humans, though? I mean, I know you're talking about animals, yeah. but, I, but I was going to ask you about. Well, mostly involved. I mean, it's more compelling. I mean, it's. I mean, I think that what captures the imagination of the human cases. Yeah, but it was done, of course, in animal models. Just, I mean, take the original. So, take the original uh, multiple pathway stuff. I mean, this is. I spent a long, much of my career on this kind of dual stream model of uh, perception. That's didn't come out of nowhere. That came through originally, you know. Uh, 
the 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 kind of big picture thing became associated with Mishkin and Ungerleiter. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Leslie Leslie Ungerleiter's work when she was early on in Mort Mishkin's lab at the at the NIH. But um, there were earlier works on uh, uh, this notion of parallel pathways solving different kinds of problems in the visual system was um, uh, already shown by Jerry Schneider in the 60s in, in rodents and showing distinctions between, let's say, the tectum and cortical contributions. And so on the notion that you actually subdivide the problem into uh, computational subroutines that solve particular things. I mean, that was a long story and uh, was shown, yeah, I think the first papers I'm aware of were Jerry Schneider's papers mm. from, I want to say, the 60s. Uh, then Unger, Leiter, and Mishkin really made it a big thing. And then people like us just took the, we just adopted it and adapted it. We said, well, that's a clever idea because it shows you actually how anatomic subdivisions can uh, can actually help you solve certain subproblems. And Greg Hickok and I basically just built on that and said, hey, Suppose that works the same way. That would actually solve a lot of our problems. And where did that come from? It came from lesions. The original idea came from lesions in animals that Schneider did with rodents. Unger, Leiter, and Mishkin then did it with primates. And then people like Goodale and Milner showed it in lesions in humans. And so there's a really, that's one of the examples of where kind of ethologically inspired animal work goes from from you know, from rodent to primate to human to computation to higher order cognition, showing that the divide and conquer strategy is a is a kind of ubiquitous phenomenon that serves. A, that doesn't mean we understand it fully, but there's no disagreement that the something of that form is the right theory. Now, people, you know, there's all kinds of different versions of this. You know, I unsurprisingly like our own, but that doesn't make it right. It just means, but but basically, there's consensus that that is one way that nervous systems solve these complicated problems. And so that, that's a, that's lesion behavior. I mean, it's all of that stuff together. And it's a, and again, people want a quick answer. Like, you know, will, will large language models get this? This took like 50 years hmm. to get to this rather banal insight. <laughs> like it's just slow stuff is slow. Yeah. But doesn't it feel so fast right now with, with the development of the bigger models? Uh, things are moving faster, aren't they? Things are feel like they're moving fast. It's not obvious that insight is moving fast. I mean, the the work is moving fast, and the the fact that it, you know, it feels a little bit like um, science is being. I've, I've talked about, or I've actually thought about writing about this. Is um, science has become uh, replaced by engineering, or basically, in at least in my area, cognitive neuroscience, say, science is basically regression. You know, science is now correlation and regression, and that's mm-hmm. engineering. And so everything moves very fast if that's sufficient. If you're, and if you're, like we talked about earlier, if the notion that you're trying to, to uh, capture is prediction and control, that's that's nice. I don't know about control so much, but you know that's good. If your notion is explanation and understanding, it's not moving that fast. I mean, what and what is it that you want? Yeah, well, that's that's the thing is I, I I'm constantly coming back and so I'm self hating in this regard, I suppose. Uh, so we're in the same boat there. Uh, you know what is what is the real value? Because I want explanation and understanding, but then it's really prediction and control that moves the world forward, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and and it's just a selfish 
sort of desire for me to understand things, but I'm not sure what I get what the gain is except for personal satisfaction. And I don't feel I'm I'm not sure I, I often come back to the notion that um I don't I don't matter in this world. So what does it matter if I have an explanation slash understanding? How does that really help? Um but then mostly I live in the world of like that's actually what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a hard question for you and your therapist. I mean the the Oh yeah, I should go to therapy. <laughs> the, because that's what you the, are. I, you're my I, therapist I, today. <laughs> so I mean, I think you're right in the sense that um, we have a very kind of instrumentalized view of this. We want we want progress of a certain form uh, that makes us feel like something has happened that we're moving forwards. Uh, you know, and that's. I think there are lots of cases where that's just not, you know, I don't think that certainly these things are mutually exclusive. Like the more understanding and real explanation you have, it doesn't cross cut the value of prediction. Right. I think it's, those are, I mean, but take something like uh, celestial mechanics. I mean, we have pretty good understanding and explanation of why things move the way they do at this point. We can't control any of it, <laughs> um, <laughs> but we can predict it. I mean, so like what, where do you really care? It sounds more like you care about control and control. I would recommend engineering uh, or mm. the medical sciences where you can develop, you know, a vaccine, a pill, a cure, a procedure, but that is not necessarily completely aligned with um, the sciences. So I'm, look, one thing that's really uh, just to say, you know, in terms of sociology of science, one thing that Germany has got right, and other countries as well. But I'm in Germany because I work there. I have more intuitions about it. Like the notion of having something like a Max Planck society is an amazing luxury of you know for humanity in the sense that there's funding, public funding to pursue pure basic research, no questions mm. asked. I mean, as, a, as an actual common good, as a, as a good for society. So there are other parts in Germany, by the way, that, do, that are much more applied. There are the, you know, the Fraunhofer Society and the Leibniz Institute. There's, there's, but there's, and those are really, they're, they're more like NIH. The task is do something very specific. We want actually, we want to see an output of this. But the notion that there is something like a Max Planck Society, where the people in this, you know, 25,000 people work there, um, that you are actually encouraged and funded to just follow your hunch because we just don't know. And probably, mm-hmm. you know, 19 times out of 20, it's just some rabbit hole. But there's then every now and then a profound insight from basic research that changes that's game changing. And the fact that we value that is that's something, you know, I think that probably existed more maybe after World War II in the United States, I mean, in the sort of, you know, Vannevar Bush or whatever, uh, but era, but why, I think that's actually pretty amazing that a country says we're willing to spend public funding on people where I don't know whether there's going to be a pill, a product, a program. We just don't know. I mean, it could be, and, and I could be wrong. I mean, this is one of the things that convinced me to, to take a position there that because I assume we're wrong. I take that for granted that 10 years people are going to look at that and be like, oh, well, that was cute. 
uh, or <laughs> dumbass. Um, so instead of the, that, really nailed it. <laughs> yeah, instead of that, nailed it. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. so isn't that isn't that an amazing thing? But you know, and that's that, that that you know that is that there are countries who say, "Look, go to it." I want. I don't know. I don't demand that at the end of your five year funding, there is a clear step towards a pill, or something like that, or you know, yeah, a new but, hearing aid. But in the long run, that, that's the, the proof is in the pudding, right? Because it's still the bet is that that will produce progress in some form in some as to now unknown way in an unknown way that likely won't affect us so that, that it's a form of sort of intellectual altruism into the distant future oh okay yeah okay so it's distant future so it's really a, a long bet it's a long bet and i i think you're right i mean i share that intuition that you know the the assumption is I, i'm not allowed to say that because i do work for Max Planck. i'm supposed to be per, uh, defending basic science here uh, but you're right, and I, I absolutely have the intuition that in the, the long bet is, in fact, something will come out of it that has concrete consequences. Hmm. But I mean, the the I don't have you know how will we know until after the fact? I mean, we sit in these things, right? So you go to the NSF <coughs> or the NIH, and one of the criteria for your grant is is the work transformative. Yeah. Well, that's nice. How would you know that until much, much, much later? Right. So am I really, do you honestly think without a deep sense of irony, I can write that paragraph into my grant without like laughing at myself? And I mean, this is, a, this is a ridiculous. And I've said that in, in study sections and in meetings and as a member of the advisory board, as a, you know, like, can we please stop being just, just save that paragraph to add more interesting stuff about the ideas or, the, you know. Don't don't give me the kind of bullshit paragraph. I, I you know like that's we can save that for leave, leave that to the the let's just do our stuff and be explicit about what we be very clear. Be for example, be very very good about how stuff can be replicated. That is in fact useful. Can someone else do it? Make some minor variants and get basically the same stuff. It's super super important because then it allows us to build on that body of of inquiry. But forget the kind of game changing. Uh, I am in my grant, and when I'm done, that's really going to help stroke. Uh huh. Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. It's always about, about schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Yeah. yeah, depression, mild cognitive impairment. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, right on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the shockers of the last, you know, of, of science is that we are, are grotesque, grotesque under uh, failure to understand mental illness. I mean, it's absolutely, it's a debacle. I mean, after, you know, 50 years or 100 years of neuro, it's just shocking how bad how bad we're doing there. Well, okay, so th this is what I was going to ask about, you know, with the neuroethological approaches you were talking about, and whether, how far we can take that with humans, because we have our own cognitive ontology of what humans are doing, um, and, and maybe this will lend itself to, you know, thinking about these high cognitive dysfunctions, right? Disorders. Um, and, you know, does that neuroethological approach, will it neuroecological approach, you know, can we even use it, apply it to humans? How far can we take it with humans when we're, we're the things that we're trying to understand? Uh, and so we have to define what we're trying to understand. If you want to be a Marian, we have to come with a computational previous cognitive ontology and talk about what the function is and the computational um, 
mm-hmm. goal is. Um, but are we, you know, even good at that? I know this is we, we kind of talk about this ad nauseum sometimes on the podcast. But um, but you mentioning the disorders made me bring that back in. Just curious, you know, whether we really can. Yeah, apply I mean, that so, so there's a couple of things to say. Like, I mean, one one is unsurprisingly we have epistemic bounds. Right. I mean, we are parochial. We have a brain that is the way it is. <laughs> you know, like we can certain things we can see, other things we can't see because that's our receptor structure, and that's the same going to be for for cognition. Certain things we can cognize, other things will be outside of our epistemic bounds for reasons of our architecture. But that's that okay. But we're not going to like get that. That can bum us out in a big, big picture. But I mean, we're not going to stop by that. And we can still ask questions as carefully as possible. And so what's the, what would be the, the neuroethological approach is, you know, this kind of tension between naturalistic experimentation, whatever that is, or just kind of characterization in the wild and controlled work. And I think, you know, both have extremely high value. Let me give you an example of, of both just to, in, in my own line of work. So one, an example of really, let's say, uh, uh, psychophysical pedantry taken to the extreme this is a series of papers uh, by my student and now postdoc Matthias Grabenhorst and Jorgos Michalareas on one particular question of a computation. And that is, do you, so one of the things about prediction that's kind of ubiquitous in the prediction literature and especially in, in the temporal structure of perceptual experience is the so-called, is, is you know, reaction times and hazard rate. So as you think something is likely, likely, likely to happen, your reaction gets faster and faster, right? So if you, you, like you're standing at the traffic light, it's not green, it's not green, it's not green, it's not green, it's not green and then you step. <laughs> so this is a long literature from over 100 years. And, you know, people think about the, the temporal structure of your experience because it's so compelling. We all feel it all the time. So there's a famous theory. It's been around for a long time and it's been um, actually most prominently uh, worked on by Mike Shadlin and, and other, other people in that field. And Mike Shadlin in the monkey case, but others in the human case, which is the so-called hazard rate. Mm-hmm. Right, so the hazard rate is basically a function that says, well, as the thing gets more and more likely to happen, I get faster and faster and you can see certain cells. Now, Matthias Grabmost and Jorgos Michael Reyes and that worked for years in very, very hardcore, super reductivist uh, experiments in the lab to test uh, what is really the function that you're building. And the answer in a series of papers from a lab is actually what you're doing is just you're able to extract the PDF, the probability density function of the event structure. You don't actually need all the extra steps to get to the hazard rate, to ca- calculate the hazard rate, you have to, you know, invert the function. You have to calculate the, you know, the CDF and so on. There's a bunch of steps, all of which are a little labile. So through very, very careful psychophysical reductive experimentation, you're sitting in a booth and you're doing the same super boring, you know, non-naturalistic experiment. You can, however, extract something very kind of fundamental, which is uh, the calculation and extraction of a PDF is one of the building blocks. So just like I said earlier, for me, in the language case, the syllable is a building block. For me, in the temporal structure perception world, extracting a PDF is a building block. I believe in that now. We've done experiments. You have to to infer it from uh, incomplete knowledge, you're saying. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So those are are kind of... So that's an example of using 
very um, lab-centered, non-naturalistic, non-ethological experiments. But there, the hypothesis is super clear. It's computationally super explicit. It's this function or that function. And then you do very precise experiments to adjudicate, and you fit a bunch of models, and you say, like, look, this is what it turns out to be. It's actually easier. It's easier to extract the PDF than a hazard rate. I think it fits the data better. It works for hearing, touch, and seeing, and so on and so forth. So that so we can make a contribution by saying our new hypothesis is the fundamental uh, computational building block isn't function X, it's function Y. So that's useful. On the other hand, could you do that? So, so I think that you can make good contributions with these super reductivist lab-based non-ethological. On the other hand, so take the language case. They're increasing experiments, and you were alluding to this, is, you know, where you listen to naturalistic stuff and you use large language models to sort of get, get at the nitty-gritty. And there, um, you can actually make pretty nice... So one of the, the uh, very... A paper I'm very happy with that I think is very cool was a part of the dissertation of Laura Williams. And she was a graduate student at NYU. She's now just started as a faculty member at Stanford. She's a, you know, an extremely accomplished uh, neurolinguistics scholar. She did in one of her thesis experiments with naturalistic narratives. Right? So you're doing nothing. You're listening. You're sitting there in the scanner. You're listening to a bunch of stories. But she had a very particular theoretical, uh, theoretically motivated question is, what are you actually tracking and how much of it at any given right. moment? And so one of the very interesting and beautiful uh, data she found really that's best seen in naturalistic ecological experimentation is as you go through the stream of speech, um, the, you know, of course, there's phoneme by phoneme by phoneme by syllable by syllable. Let's take the phoneme level, the single speech sounds. How many at a time do you have access to? So she was able to show some very beautiful decoding experiments on neurophysiological data that at any given moment, you can actually grab onto three. You can successfully, at any time point that you sample, hear, as it were, or you know, grab onto for perceptual experience three phonemes as you go through. At the same time, if, uh, you can keep them separate. That is, they have a separate sort of representational identity. You don't have confusions. It's not that the three become a kind of gemisch of messy, un, you know, uh, uh, unseparable things. They are actually separable. And so that only works if you have a completely naturalistic case where you don't actually give people individual sounds or individual words. You have to have the stream happen. So you can make a contribution to our understanding of just spoken language recognition by doing a neuroethologically motivated experiment. So I think there's, again, you got to pick your weapon for the question. What's the question that you're trying to answer? And then, uh, so even in the human case, ecologically valid experimentation, and people are trying to have it now walking around and having EEG headsets on and having conversation. I think that's very ambitious and bold i think sometimes it's a little bit cheesy uh but more data collecting if the question is well fine it might work it might work but it is a lot more data collecting for perhaps that uh unprincipled reasons sometimes that's the downside there can be there can be a lot of just uh yes for for it's unprincipled and often unless it's theoretically very well developed it's a lot of uh, data mining without a question. And that, that is, of course, something that there I get pretty un, 
unhappy or ungenerous uh, as a as a colleague or reviewer. Permutantly, one could say. So, <laughs> so David, it's it's a, a Sunday. I know that um, you take this most of your day to reflect on the benevolent Christian God. Um, I ha- I have to go. Uh, <laughs> I have to go hang out with my benevolent family. Um, but so so I don't want to keep you much longer. But anything else uh, on your mind that you want to get off your chest? Any any anything else bothering you? Um, <clears throat> really, I just wanted to have you on to kind of shoot the shit about your thoughts on the memory thing, and then. Uh, get get an update from you. Yeah, no, I think that the the look. I mean, again, the if if there's any theme coming out here over the it's uh, it's that the memory story is so foundational to no matter what aspect you're in in neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience, we have to get a grip on it one way or the other. Whichever team you're on here, and I think you're doing uh, it's an important service that you're doing to the field in the sense that you've got to have many people who are reflecting on this because we, we have to sort it out. We're just kind of stuck. I mean, this is why I wrote this paper about, you know, we, we never talked about language of thought, which is a completely different kind of story. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, we do need to talk about that. But yeah. But that's, that's, you know, language of thought is an interesting uh, uh, philosophical idea, which I think is actually correct. Um, let's let's talk about that because I, I did want to talk about that um, because it's a huge topic. And, uh, and so you've written, you've written this piece talking about, I, I, talking about how it, you think it's correct and some of the reasons why you think it's correct, but within the within the article, you talk about how it kind of disappeared for a while. And is that true? Did was the language of thought prevalent and then discarded, and now it's reappearing? Is that is that a correct yeah, story? I mean, yeah, a little bit. I mean, the, the, so the language of thought was uh, uh, very prominent in the, in the uh, you know in sort of middle age philosophy, uh, and the idea was well, you have to you know we didn't. Well, how do you how do you think? How does it actually work at all? And what format do you think in? And then there were there were um, in the philosophical literature, most notably by the philosopher Jerry Fodor, he sort of reignited that notion in mm-hmm. I guess sixties and seventies, saying like, look, you know, if this is a thing, if we're trying to figure out, I mean, he was really wearing his more cognitive science hat, less his philosophy hat. If there is such a thing of you know, we we're able to think. It's very unlikely to be, you know, it has to be a pretty abstract format. And let's just call it the, unfortunately, he used the, the expression language of thought, which made yeah. everyone think, oh, he means language, which is language. precisely what he didn't mean. That's right. a kind of bummer of a misnomer. He means, you know, formal system of thing. And he was trying to, you know, develop a computational theory. He'd say, like, look, for the kinds of things we do, you need stuff like variables, functions, uh, and so we just uh, something like predicate logic or something like that. Very, not not a very bold claim, but it you know it has things like variables. It is very abstract. It means you insert values into functions and so on. And uh, but it was a very interesting idea. And it also said that look, there's aspects of thought that are separate from language, or separate from other domains, or separate from just you know let's say mental imagery stuff like that. And it's a pretty interesting idea. Uh, and then that idea became pretty unpopular in the well it wasn't really addressed at all but then the neuroscience world basically said look it's horse shit what, why is that it, it can't be implemented it's the kind of stuff that simply we don't you know it's so far away from you know our notion of sensory systems or neural computation it just doesn't it, it, such a thing can't really be it's a it's a silly idea but in the last few years people have been sort of thinking about it again thinking like actually we're trying to get our head around the relationship between thinking, you know, 
language, other forms of representation. And so Nina Kazani and I, our motivation was very straightforward. We, we think it's a very, you know, whether it's right or wrong, it's a very interesting hypothesis. And we simply, as we wrote the paper, we just disagree with the argument that it can't be done. And the way we construct that argument is super straightforward. We say, here, what, what were the, the requirements for a language of thought? And then uh, this is what you would have to have. Okay, guess what? Here's, some, here's an example. Here's a bunch of hippocampal cell types that do exactly what you think can't be done. They meet all the criteria. So there's, you know, filler role independence, abstraction, you know, scaling and so on. So it's simply false to assert uh, that it can't be done. Neural systems already have a precisely that kind of architecture. It doesn't, and we don't argue that thought is spatial or it's all hippocampal. That's not, we, we wanted, we simply wanted to provide examples and say, look, here's a couple of cell types. They're, extremely well evidenced well known there's no you know there's a fact of the matter they and they embody precisely the things functionally that are ostensibly not possible therefore it's a bad argument and the language of thought is in fact absolutely neurally possible our job is to figure out is it you know how do you do it where is it done and so on and so forth but i think uh, the, the, there's a growing interest in, uh, you know, how this thinking, can we begin to get a thinking which is kind of internal and it's in part separate from language, right? There are aspects that are just ineffable. They can't be externalized through language because language and thought are dissociable. Hmm. And so uh, and there's, so that's a fun and interesting way to think about it. So our demonstration is a very short and easy paper that simply says, hey, the entire entorhinal and hippocampal system is full of exactly the cells is doing it. So uh, go back and try again. Different argument, please. But your argument is not, you're not pointing to the, so just a list of all the different cell types, boundary cells, uh, boundary vector cells, object cells, et cetera. You're not pointing at those and saying, these cells are doing language of thought. You're just using it as a, a, reflect, a reflection and saying, look, this That's is exactly language right. of thought, a uh, language of thought type or like or allowed process is is being reflected in the activity of these neurons that's exactly right no it's exactly as you're saying yeah this is simply i mean one can then have different debates and some people say look oh we think a lot of thinking is in fact spatial and so on because but that's not the point our argument is precisely as you summarize it we're showing on principle here's the type of operation that cells have to do here's an example of them best wishes <laughs> Well, you're not. So, where are you with that? Are you gonna? Are you continuing that, or is that? Was it really just, hey, everybody, look, and then you're moving on? <laughs> well, no. I mean, of course, we we. So, Nina Kazanina, who's now going to be a professor, she's in Bristol. She's not going to be a professor in Geneva. Is going to continue that. I'm going to continue it, but it's that's for young people. That's young person's game. It's very <laughs> difficult to. But it's again, it's a case where there are well developed theoretical and computationally explicit ideas about what kind, you know, but let's say predicate, predicate calculus or something like that. And there's nothing, you know, for anyone who studies vision or navigation, this is not a surprise. Mm. You have to do uh, mathy type stuff. Yeah. This is not surprising. Why this is considered so outrageous baffles me since to even get, you know, from here to wherever you're going with your family uh, is requires all those things. This is not like, I don't get it. I just don't get why this is so objectionable for me. When you you um, reference uh, a few different kind of review papers uh, that touch on language of thought as well, that uh, I guess they're all arguing that, hey, we, we do need to, yeah, well, section one starts the reemergence of the language of thought. This is from uh, Mendelbaum et al. And there are a couple of reviews that you yeah, point that's to. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, there's a reason. I mean, basically, in the last couple of years, there's been a really a kind of acknowledgement that this has been a, that it's a very important hypothesis about how the cognitive apparatus is organized. And we've sort of now blown and it's time to kind of rethink very carefully what's going on. And so, yeah, Quill, Pidon, Mandelbaum, Kazan, others are saying like, hey, there's there's actually a game in town, uh, certainly for cognitive science, psychology, philosophy. And let's actually see if it has very clear and good and testable implications for, for brain science. And I think I'm, I'm totally on board with that and excited to see it kind of come back. Because, again, just because people wrote it 800 years ago doesn't mean it was idiotic. It was people who thought very carefully about thinking. They didn't have the apparatus we have, but they said there's there's something, you know, something smells funny. We have to figure out how we do this. But how do you think? They only had the computational theory of mind. They had nothing else, no imaging, no, no optogenetics, no single cell transcriptomics, just thinking cap. Yeah. But what about, um, how do you think of this in terms of the the recent popularity of the dynamics and attractors and state spaces? Uh, how do you think of that and in, in with regard to or compared to something like the symbolic operations needed for a language of thought to occur? Um, do we need, I mean, I I've, don't quite understand why this should be mutually exclusive. I mean, they might be um, uh, approaches that solve different kinds of sub-problems or different problems in general. I mean, I, I think that the dynamic stuff is super interesting. I mean, and, and uh, important to pursue and I'm, um, but I don't see a principled conflict to having that kind of machinery and also and having a symbolic computation implemented. And I just don't see why that should be a non-starter for both. That doesn't doesn't. I mean, like, look. I mean, the, look, uh, look how weird stuff is in the brainstem. I mean, totally closed configuration little nuclei that do like very you know like people don't you know. Do we argue about that? Now? I really urge you, or mo- urge you, motivate you, invite you to consider inviting someone like Catherine okay. Carr. Sorry, she's so in really, my notes right you know, now. From her work on evolution and, and neuroethology, because there you just see a kind of generosity of spirit and, and biological principlesness that shows you how you can actually link levels and not worry about, like, maybe this is a dynamics kind of explanation over here, but we really need symbolic computation to solve this equation. And there's not, I mean, you know, brain's a complicated place, right? So I don't see a, that they rule each other out and they might not be solving the same kind of stuff. And both seem extremely important and interesting to pursue, actually. Okay, David. Well, uh, I appreciate your generous spirit as always. Thanks for, um, thanks for coming on. You kind of did it on a whim too. Uh, I just, I got that email from you. You sent me that paper. I thought I should just ask him, come back on. So I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. No, no, no. I'm at Absolutely. It's fun. It's fun to talk about what we do and it's entertaining. Now, now you go play. I'm going to go to the oh, beach. All right. I think I'm going to go to Rockaway Beach oh, right nice. now. So okay. Happy plan. beaching. Good talking. Bye, ball. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. 
Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.